the minute we think we know what God's going to do, it's something different. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today, we've got Tracy. Good morning. And we have Karen. Hello. And back from the wastelands of Hawaii, <laughs> we have Eric. Hey, it's good to be back. Hi, uh, Eric. I'm sorry you had to endure that. Everybody gets their trial in life. <laughs> we, we, we admired your strength and perseverance out loud last night on the podcast. Nice. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being there for me. Yeah, the thoughts of the, the, the T's and P's, the T's and P's have been with you for <laughs> for your time away. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Eric is back from uh, from Hawaii, and uh, we are, well, almost, not quite when we're recording here. It's not quite summer yet, but boy, it, it feels like it's got to be. And uh, it's been pretty, pretty nuts and hot here, so um, he... Probably came. My guess is you probably came back to hotter weather than you had while you were there. Yeah, by far. Yeah, I've never been, but my wife said it's really nice and and just kind of a nice, constant, comfortable temperature there. So, yeah, you had it terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're we're back now. Did you did you do the road to Hana? I did not drive the road to Hana because I'm the only one in family who would tolerate it. And uh, I figured to do that trip for the benefit of 25% of those um, involved <laughs> would, <laughs> would have been a step backwards. So we stuck to things that the majority of the group enjoyed. We kept it pretty simple. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you had a great time. And we're glad to have you back. All righty. Well, let's get into our discussion today. We are in the book of Second Kings. We're in chapter 2. Now we've just gone. We've been going back and forth between um, kings in Israel and Judah, in in the split of that whole nation of Israel. Now of uh, now we have the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and we were talking about Ahaziah and Ahab and all these all these different kings and names that that I will never keep straight um, unless I look at the handy dandy chart that Karen gave us a week or two ago. But, You're welcome. Yes, it's 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 very helpful. It really is because because sometimes you have kings with the same names. Yeah, right at the at same the, time. At, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But so we get into today. Um, it starts out very interesting because verse one starts right out that God is about ready to take Elijah, and as we you get a couple of. Uh, a couple more verses in, and it sounds like almost as if everybody knows that God is going to take Elijah, because it says something along the lines of uh, the sons of the prophets. Uh, they said, "Do you know?" They're saying to Elisha, "They said, do you know the Lord will take away your master?" So um, it's like it's no secret that Elijah is getting ready to go. Was that interesting to you guys? That that it seemed uh, like this was common knowledge. Among them, I thought it made sense in the in the. <clears throat> I thought it made sense from the perspective of 
easing the way for his replacement to step into power. Like he was, he could have easily, I think, been perceived as the servant or the assistant. And now who is he to put on that mantle and think that he's somebody just because Elijah disappeared. So I think for for the humans, the humans left behind, that's an important thing. Just okay. kind of like a passing of the torch or yeah, passing of the authority. Profit and training, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think it was more like maybe their small group, you know, that really kind of knew what was about to happen and, and were getting kind of prepared for it. Yeah, no, I wondered, what do you guys think about this? Or did you see this in the text? Everybody seems to know that Elijah is going to be taken, except there's nothing explicitly says Elijah knew this. That's true. I hadn't quite picked up on that, but... Maybe he did, but it never explicitly says that. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it does It does in the respect that Elijah, like he keeps saying, well, Elijah, Elijah said, I'm going to go here. And you wait for me. And Elisha says, uh-uh, not on your life. I'm going with you. Right. Okay. So so there was, I think there I think he knew, particularly when it comes to, you know, when you see me taken up, if if you see me taken up, you'll know. At that point, yes. There was yeah. quite clearly a, an acknowledgement of it. And there wasn't much of a I mean, it, it we read through it in about two minutes. Like, okay. oh, he goes from here to here, and he goes from here to here. But these were this wasn't like an afternoon stroll yeah. going from all of these places. This happened over, over a legitimate period of time. Is Elisha is going with Elijah, saying, "Hey, wherever you go, I will go." Now, when see, here we go. I almost did it. When Elijah, no, when ha, <laughs> when Elisha, okay. you're the winner. Dollar. Put a dollar in the misnamed profit jar. <laughs> For our listeners' sake, we had a we had, we had a sort of gentleman's bet going on here. Who was going to be the first one to get Elijah and Elisha mixed up in, in uh, by name? And and of course, it's me <laughs> because <laughs> who else, right? But um, <laughs> Elisha, when he hears all all of these other as a sons of prophets i don't know if i guess they're prophets themselves i don't quite understand the term but every time they say to him and they say it a couple of times that god's going to take elijah away elisha always says yeah i know just stay quiet about it and i'm trying to figure out is this because he doesn't want to hear about it or is this I, I, i don't know if i quite understood why he would not want them to talk about it unless it was just an uncomfortable thought to him or or maybe like Eric said, it was not yet known to Elijah. I don't know. I just found that um, odd that he wouldn't want to talk about it. Yeah, I don't know why. But yeah, it says it twice happened twice. Mm-hmm. Well, and like we said, Elijah is uh, going from town to town, and he's always telling Elisha to stay behind. And Elisha is like, nope, I am going with you wherever you go. Well, they get to the Jordan River, and Elijah takes off his mantle. And I think this must be kind of the idea of of literally um, passing the mantle along. I never quite understood that term until maybe now, where it's almost a literal. It's really kind of a literal thing, where he 
Elijah takes his mantle off of himself and puts it on Elisha. Well, actually, no, no, no. Let me back that up. That doesn't happen here, but where does yeah. that happen? Yeah, it does happen later. But he, and here he takes it off, he rolls it up, and he strikes the water, and the water parts, and they cross over. And when they get across, Elisha then asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. I, I kind of get what he's asking for, yet at the same time, there's a part of me that thinks, why, why would you want to ask for the spirit of another human being? Does that seem does yeah. that seem sort of out of place to you? Or... Yeah, I noticed that, and it actually bothered me. I I wanted him to say, "Give me a give." I the blessing I would like is a double portion of God's spirit that rests on you. You know, mm-hmm. that just it, it bothered me that he said it that way. And well, maybe that's what he meant. Yeah, it could yeah. be an idiom. I... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that could just be an idiom or an yeah. expression that we don't understand the same way. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's kind of how I took it that, you know, it was just that that connection or that spirit that, you know, he had that the Lord had given him and his closeness with the Lord. I think I think that's where I kind of took it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we've all had mentors, you know, people that we would like to be able to emulate. Uh, and I think that's pro- that's probably what what the phrase is meaning more mostly. Well, at this point, we get. Uh, a really cool vision here of something, and I'd really, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see it because I'd like to know what it really looks like and what exactly they're talking about. But a chariot of fire with horses of fire appears. Yeah, I just think that would be that would be interesting. It'd be interesting if if my imagination comes up with the same thing that actually happened. But um, so we don't know exactly even what that would look like, but I think it would be pretty cool. But then we're told that Elijah gets carried away by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, I think it's um, maybe kind of important to point out here. This is a physical depart- departure. Yes. This is Elijah being, I mean, it's not like he left his body behind. He's physically being taken away to somewhere. Where is that? I don't know. But this really speaks to our concept of what heaven is. And... You know, the popular the popular concept of heaven being, of course, you know, you die and your spirit or your soul or whatever uh, goes away. You know, you think about this. If you think this through logically from this story, how does a physical body go somewhere where only spirits would be? I don't think you can quite reconcile that here. So Elijah is being taken away. Yeah, physically. Mm-hmm. Yep, and this this is a um, this shows up actually several times. It's kind of this idea of like, hey, look around in the Bible and see what else shows up. We see chariots of fire actually shows up later in today's reading mm-hmm. in chapter six. It's pretty awesome. And yep. if you want to see something similar to this, it's not exactly the same. But in Revelation nineteen, there's the rider and the white horse, and there's an interesting thing is Revelation 19.2, this is um, the writer is called Faithful and True. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written, written, written no one knows but himself. Basically, when God shows up, there's always fire. 
you know, and it's always so incredibly bright that that people can't handle it. When Moses asks to see God, he's like, ah, I'll have to cover you with my hand and you'll only get to see the back of me. And then even then he glowed for days. There's something, there's a lot going on here that is something outside of our normal way. Because, I mean, really, if we want to look at this literally, Elijah is taken in a chariot of fire. How do you do that and not get dead? You know, it's, it, but, it, but we go into the book of Daniel and we have the, the three Hebrews. They are thrown into the furnace of fire. And who shows up in the fire like it's no big deal? Jesus does. It's the son of man, you know, or as Nebuchadnezzar said, the son of the one of the gods. And so this, I mean, they're physically in the fire in, in the book of Daniel. And Elijah is here physically, and it's fire, and you read the descriptions of the second coming and so on in Revelation, and fire is a thing that is just always part of God or around him, but it doesn't burn the righteous. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. It's not that it doesn't burn. Boy, you read Revelation. There's a lot that burns, <laughs> but it's not the righteous, and here we have... <laughs> Elijah going in this kind of interesting, cool thing. I've kind of wondered, you know, what does fire mean? Does that just mean it appears to be burning brightly, but it's just really just bright? You know, I've kind of just wondered that as just a passing curiosity, not that I'm actually trying to solve the riddle. There's no way to solve it. But like when you when you're trying to put something that you haven't seen before into words, you use words that you know to describe something you haven't seen. And that's and it, you know, that's not necessarily actually what's happening. Right. There's a little it's loss in translation, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Just kind of a curiosity. Could be, but in Revelation, that fire it burns a lot of stuff. And, yeah. And we we see that term of being burned up and the wicked being turned to ashes. Again, maybe that's not literal, literal, but the result is pretty literal. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can think of, oh, what is it? Um, what is it? In Revelation, I think there's there's a chariot where the wheels are made out of angels. You know, and in Ezekiel, there's oh, wheels within wheels that are yeah. covered with eyes. And it's kind of like, I'm very curious what all of those things mean in a literal sense. If that is actually what they mean in a literal sense, or if that's it's a description of something else. And I don't know, but these chariots and horses of fire show up again, and they're yeah. <clears throat> described as what they, that's how they're described anyway. Mm -hmm. That's how he goes, and I think it's interesting that he says, uh, and Elisha saw it, this is 2.12, and Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. You think about that, how he took that as these Flaming chariots and horses are for Israel. Think about that. I mean, he's probably never seen chariots and horses of fire before, and yet somehow he associates those as being Israel's. They're gods, therefore they're Israel's. You know, but I'm wondering if him being a prophet too, and, and working with Elijah so closely that 
you know, that was that was the main intent. And we've seen that since the very beginning that, you know what, this was, you know, the Lord deemed them as his people and they were that nation was supposed to be his. And he, you know, I'll go before you. I will clear this land for you to make it yours. You know, and I wonder if it's that that perceived notion that, you know what, God is with us. He provides for us. He strikes down our enemies, you know, and and this was that relationship or what they ultimately wanted to be that relationship. We know that they've they went astray multiple times and they felt that wrath, too, from God. And I think that's just that's kind of how I took it that, you know what, this is ours because of this relationship that we have with God. We just need to do what we we're told to do to maintain it. Well, once Elijah is gone. Elisha goes and picks up that mantle. So this is where he gets it. He actually goes and picks it up because it's been left behind. Uh, Elijah apparently dropped it when he was taken away. And so now Elisha is standing here by the Jordan. And he picks it up and he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Now, I'm thinking he's, I'm thinking this is him like calling on God because... (laughs) And not so much where is he, because I mean, okay, we just saw this amazing thing, but what and he strikes the water and it and it divides for him as well. So we're getting a picture here that something that was going on with Elijah before is now being continued on with Elisha. Mm-hmm. And as yeah. he crosses the river, then were you gonna say something, Eric? No, exactly the same. He yeah. crossed the river and there's other people there. And we've mentioned earlier that this was a sign. And other people were, I think, Karen, you said, kind of being prepped for the idea that there was going to be a shift in authority here. Yeah. So that it wasn't Elisha showing up and saying, well, now you all do what I say. Um, that this was God intentionally showing these other people, yeah, this is the next guy. And so when they see, because apparently as I read it, You've got these sons of the prophets on the other side of the river watching this. And when they see the same miracle happen from Elisha that Elijah had performed, they're like, okay, well, that's that's the new guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting. That thing that Elisha says when he hits the water. I find that interesting because my whole life I've been taught to pray directly to God, have a personal relationship with God. And it would never, I don't know. I, I, it, it's odd to me that he would, that he would, first of all, call God the God of Elijah instead of just God. And then I don't, I don't know. It was, it was just so odd to me. It was like, he was calling on, he was calling on somebody else's God as if he wasn't sure what the response was going to be. And it was like, how do you not feel like he's your God as well? That was a very odd little prayer to me. Yeah, but that's a cultural thing because they. Yeah, that's what I ended up thinking. It's got to be something outside of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm like, yeah, it was their God for sure, but it's yours too, and they seem to know that. But it's you're right. It's a thing that they do that we don't. But they were very much more focused on ancestry and their in their history and the tribe and what God had done in the past. And we've, in the West, become so individualized, it's like, who's God to me? And I don't think that they're, either one of those is wrong. It's just we've kind of lost track of the first one. 
Well, as I'm reading this, it seems to me that maybe the guys on the other side of the river saw the entire thing happen because they they recognize now that Elisha has whatever spirit, whatever you want to call it, that Elijah has. But I think they, they possibly saw him taken away because they want to actually go look for Elijah as if God might have just picked him up and randomly dropped him off somewhere. <laughs> on the side of the mountain. Yeah, it's like maybe it's, maybe they left him in a mountain or or in a valley or something like that, and uh, and and Elisha just goes, don't don't no don't go don't don't bother you're not gonna find him but they keep pestering him he's like all right fine whatever go ahead go look and they go look and they come back and they don't find him after three days and Elisha's like I told you not to go, you know. <laughs> But now we get into several stories of of uh, miracles formed by Elisha, and I don't think we got quite. We got a couple of Elijah, but we get several from Elisha here. The first one, um, it talks about how the the city, or I'm sorry, the water of the city is bad, and I wasn't sure which city. I think Jericho, possibly. Uh, I don't remember if it said exactly, but at any rate, we've got a city with bad water, and. Elijah's uh, uh, he asks for a new bowl with salt in it and he throws the salt in the water at its source and God says he's healed the water there's a lot a lot of these uh, these miracles we're going to see to me they're, they're very strange actions that don't necessarily seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. It's like, why, why this sign? Why is this the thing that's being used to do it? Like talk. Yeah, I, throwing... I thought the same thing. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's just a very short little, well, this is what Elisha did. And everything was great after that. So I don't, I don't know if there's symbolism in this that I'm missing. Because usually when God has a has a prophet do something strange, it's because he's trying to point something out. He's trying to make some kind of um, a point. You know, he's trying to make some kind of a point with it. Like you know, he has who is it that he had marry the marry the pro, the uh, prostitute? And, Hosea, was that Hosea? Yeah, yeah, go. yeah. So go go marry a prostitute, and and then she leaves. Go get go get your wife. You know, go get your wife. You know. Just things like that. Just things like that where, okay, okay, I, I can understand the symbolism in that. Some of these here, I don't quite get it. And so This goes to the point, we've talked about this as Israel was entering the promised land, as they had their battles. They were never done the same way. It's yeah. not a repeatable formula because he does, I, I, I agree, he does the most random things that for anyone else, they wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, he throws salt in the water, and then it's healed forevermore. It's like, no, that's not actually a chemical solution to the problem. Right. We're going to throw a stick in where where a piece of iron has sunk. Like, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We're going to solve a poison issue by throwing a handful of flour in a, in a bowl. It's like, well, that doesn't work either. <laughs> and I kind of think that's the point. It is the point is, is that God can do anything— with essentially nothing, and the point is, it's his power. It's not the it's not the magic formula because then we'd run off and do it ourselves. See, yeah, like you know, 
when I first read the story of, you know, crossing the river and hitting, rolling up the mantle and hitting it, and then it, Elisha does it on the way back, the first thing I thought was, I am buying my coats in the wrong store, you know? <laughs> it's like, it, there, there's this, this it, you have to wonder, it, clearly the methods of making these things happen, like the little steps to take, clearly that wasn't the thing that caused the miracle. So why do them? And it makes me very curious how those things appeared to the people around and what kind of impact it had. Because those were those were visible things for God's prophet to go that did not have anything to do with the miracle that actually happened. So what was the point of doing them? It doesn't yeah. stop there. Jesus I, spits and makes mud and puts it on somebody's eyes. It's like, well, yeah. that's not literally uh, not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah, that seems like that would be the exact opposite of what you'd do, I would think. Wouldn't you, Tracy? You know, I think, too, that, you know, that's what we look at, too, is that the minute we think we know what God's going to do, it's something different. And I think Moses ran into the same thing when he was leading them, you know, through the wilderness that, you know what, strike the rock, wait, talk to the rock, you know, and I think the minute that we think we know it exactly what to do, it's different. And I think that's, that's the whole nature of it is that you know what you don't know it everything is at god's disposal let me just let me just make a little connection here if we leap ahead in our reading a little bit to the story of naaman you know naaman is asked to do a series of things in order to be healed of leprosy and he doesn't want to do them cuz they seem degrading like he's he's an important guy you know, the, the prophet didn't even come out to meet him. He's offended. He doesn't want to do the things that he's supposed to do. And he's going to turn around and go home mad. Like, I drove all this way to get my rash looked at. And he, he, the doctor didn't even look at my rash. He just, like, had somebody come tell me what to do. I don't like this. I'm going to go home. And his servant says to him, well, if he had asked you to do a big thing, you would do it. So why not do this small thing? And it makes me wonder how much of what God tells his prophets to do in front of other people, how much of the things he tells us to do are for our faith rather than an actual, you see what I'm getting at? Like, mm-hmm. is is our stepping out and doing this random disconnected thing that looks so strange, is that simply us stepping out in faith in a way that will affect us, but really doesn't change God's power in the slightest? Yeah. You see what I'm getting at? Oh, yeah. No, God God is saying, I want you to do this thing that doesn't make any sense to you at all, but do it because I told you to, and it's going to be fine. Yes. Over and over. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a, I think that's a tough lesson for a lot of us to learn because we want everything to make sense. We want everything to be spelled out for us. You know, if you do this thing that makes sense to you and you follow these steps, it's all going to be great, you know? Well, and and as as humans, those be, having those steps be steps that we could repeat to know in mm-hmm. advance that it would work next time would be great. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, like if I if I had been raised with no religion whatsoever, and I came to a knowledge of God later, I can only imagine how attractive the forgiveness process of Catholicism would look to me. You go mm-hmm. here, you admit what you did wrong. You do this repetitive thing this many times, and then you know you're forgiven, right? It's like two plus two equals four. Okay, I feel better now. 
but to have like a random pattern of unknowns and disconnected things, and yet God's power is the only consistent thing in it. It continually shakes up my humanity, my predictive tendencies. Well, what did I do last time? Can I duplicate that this time? No, it wasn't me, right? So it keeps the focus where it ought to be. Yeah. Well, the next little story we get here is so strange to me that that this is something done by a prophet of God and almost it, it's put out there almost as if it's a justified thing for him to do. Elijah is walking along and some boys start haunting him. Another prize. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it would be me. I knew it would be me. It's it's all of us going to be here. <laughs> Elisha is walking along and some boys start taunting him for being bald. And the response here is so it's so odd to me. Elijah see that's my problem. I wrote it down wrong. Elisha <laughs> 3 pronounces a curse on them. And they end up being mauled by bears. <laughs> I mean, I okay. My my father in law has has been follically challenged ever since <laughs> I've known him, and I've I've given him a little grief about it. You know, play, playful, you know, playfully taunting him. For our um, listeners who cannot see us, Matt has a phenomenal head of hair. He's got like movie star hair. <laughs> I got to have some good qualities, right? <laughs> but anyway, these boys are taunting him. Obviously, they're not they're not being playful about it. They're being mean about it. But but um if I ever once thought that I was going to be mauled by bears for making fun of my father-in-law, I would have never <laughs> poked any fun at him for 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 being bald. Um this this just seems like a strange dichotomy of character to me. Yeah, it does. Um, and for God to honor this is so weird to me. The only thing I can come up with here is that these guys, I suspect maybe these boys knew the position that Elisha held. Oh, yeah, and- for sure, because they're they're taunting him with go up. Yep. So this is what's going on here is you've got a big group of people in Israel. This is the apostate nation. Who are mocking the the living translation? That means the, the the removal of Elijah by God in chariots of fire. They know about this and they are mocking his replacement. That's pretty bold. That's yeah. really bold. And I think that's what's going on here. And probably it is. It's my speculation that that's why this was honored as a serious thing is that people would hear about this and say, Oh, this is, this is serious here. We're not maybe, I mean, what kind of culture would mock the, the chariots of fire showing up and taking away God's prophet? It's a pretty tall order. But as far as God handling things different each time, I'm remembering a time in the New Testament where people looked up at Jesus on the cross and said, are you a son of God? Bring yourself down from there. 
you know, and there was some mockery going on and there was no lightning bolts called and there were no bears called. And it's like it to me, this is a perfect example how each scenario is different. Yes. The observers, the people who hear about it, need to see and hear a different thing. Society is in a different point and God handles his own role and the role of his servants accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, this is this is interesting to me because it's like it's like it's demanding respect for what God has done and for the role that he's put Elisha in following in Elijah's footsteps. And yet in other situations in the Bible, his prophets, God's prophets are not respected. They're instead captured and treated terribly. And Mm -hmm. there's no leaping to their rescue. You know, there's no righteous indignation on their part that takes form like this. So it's like, it's very, wow. So some of the stuff that I read about in the Bible where God's servants are not stood up for are hard for me to digest. And, and, and yet this one is hard to digest also because if you think about it as the supernatural thing, like the, if you take the baldy, right? If you take the baldy out of it, it's a much bigger deal. But when you think about like how many of us got you know, had to wear glasses as a kid and got called four eyes or like me, I have red hair. I got called carrot top and was continually teased by strangers walking down the street. Oh, you've got to have a bad temper. You know, like that sort of superficial human teasing back and forth. That doesn't deserve bears coming out of the woods to maul you. I mean, it might feel like it in the moment and it's a good thing nobody's ever given me a smite button. (laughs) But if you, you know, you, you, you tie in mockery of God or God's role or the seriousness and value of God's servants, his prophets. Yeah, I, I, that makes it make more sense. And then where is that attitude of protection and defense in other situations? Yeah, it's all very individual. Disturbing mm-hmm. to me who can't see what's going on behind the scenes. I just can only read it and wonder. Yeah, yeah. You know what I took out of that though, Karen, is that the mm. most prominent redhead I know would like to have a smite button. <laughs> that's disturbing <laughs> okay that's what you got out of that huh are you sure are you sure that's all you got out of it okay. all right okay uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> second kings chapter three uh we're we are told or reminded here that jehoram is king in Israel. And I'm thinking, if I'm not mistaken here, it seems like this was maybe a little backup in the chronology. Uh, Things are just sort of back and forth here. But he becomes king in Israel in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat of Judah. And it seems like probably this is late in Jehoshaphat's reign because when you look at the handy-dandy chart that Karen gave us... um, (laughs) They barely overlap on, on the timeline that we have here. Jehoshaphat is close to being done before Jehoram becomes king in Israel. But we're, we're told that he reigned for 12 years. And that he's not as bad as his parents, but he still caused the sin uh, Israel to sin. He did manage to put away some of the sacred pillars, but we're reminded that Jeroboam the one that he's, they're saying that he's like, had people worshiping golden calves. So 
sort of good because he kind of started to make things good, but kind of just as bad because it's still he still has this kingdom that's stuck in in this weird idolatry. Now, if we remember way back in, oh, well, way back, I guess it was not way, way back, but um, at some point, well, it was way back because I think the the Moabites had been kind of uh, put into servitude of Israel. And here they are, they've been, they've been providing lambs and wool to Israel. And they started to rebel after Ahab had died. Now, as they're rebelling, there is this alliance built between Israel and Judah to fight the Moabites. Now, this is interesting to me how the kingdoms have split, but it's like they just can't ever quite get away from each other. They're constantly trying to work together, or at least they're trying to benefit from each other. But we get this alliance between Israel and Judah, and then they bring in the king of Edom. Which is interesting because it seems like the Edomites have been a thorn in their side for quite a while, too. I think last week we talked about how Edom and Syria are kind of synonymous. And we even, uh, in the book of, of uh, Obadiah, we were talking about how, how God had placed a judgment against Edom because of the way they had been treating Israel over the, over the years and the centuries. But at any rate... Now they get the king of Edom on their side as well, and they go for a seven-day march. And I don't know if they didn't prepare right, or I don't know if it's just the conditions of the land. It's just probably the case. But there's no water for, for the men or for their animals. And Jehoram, king of Israel, thinks that these three nations are now being delivered up to Moab. I'm thinking, well, you decided to go, go attack them, but he, he's really worried about this. So Jehoshaphat of Israel shows the wisdom of the group, and he wants to go to a prophet to ask God what to do. And Elisha's name comes up. So they go talk to Elisha, and Elisha, he doesn't even want to talk to Jehoram because of his idolatry. So Jehoram's reputation is you know, known, especially to Elisha here. But because of Jehoshaphat, Elisha is willing to help the group. And through him, God tells him to dig some ditches and canals. And even though there won't be any rain, says the valley is going to have water. So we're going to have some kind of a, a, a miraculous thing happen here. And he also reassures them that the Moabites will be delivered up to those three kings. And they're given some instructions. They're supposed to destroy the Moabite cities, cut down their trees, dam up their springs, and ruin their farmland. There's not going to be any kindness shown to the Moabites here. But as they do what they're told, water actually begins to come from Edom. What did you think about, it seems like God was willing to work with these kings because they had somebody with them who was loyal to him. How does that speak to you with God's willingness to work with a group that maybe isn't perfect, but because it contains people that are loyal, uh, God is willing to work with them? I think that's exactly what it says. Well, the Moabites, they rise up to confront these kings. And when they see this water that's coming in from Edom, for some reason it looks like blood to them. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know if it's, uh, you know, they're being seen, seeing something sort of more supernatural. But it makes them assume that the forces of the kings have killed each other. 
And so they just head out. They think they've got easy pickings. They're going to go out and, and uh, collect the spoil off the bodies. But the Israelites, they, they get there and the Israelites attack them. And they do everything to the land God told them to do. So they, they kill the Moabites. They destroy their land. They, they, make, they basically make Moab just completely uninhabitable. I mean, they're tossing rocks into the farmland. I've never personally been a farmer, but I know that having rocks in your farm is not considered uh, great, especially back when you're tilling and, and everything by hand. At least they didn't tell him to salt the salt the land and make it completely useless. But uh, definitely, it was it was definitely to make the area uh, unpleasant. And see, Undes- and see, like I've I've had to go out with a tractor pulling a flatbed trailer and pick rocks from what's going to be a new hayfield and throw them all up onto the trailer. And it's 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 just kind of tedious work. It doesn't destroy the field. It's just a nuisance. So I don't yeah. know. That was that was strange to me. Yeah. Well, if you've got a tractor and a whole team, but if you had an army of people, each one of them dropping a rock, and there's one of you later to fix it. It's, yeah, maybe it's more of a sort of an insult towards the Moabites than anything, just to make make it a hassle to to farm that land. Well, it's the same with, what were the other things they were supposed to do? Cut down all the good trees and stop up all the water sources? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the trees, it. that's the biggest effect there. Water sources can be re-dug out. If the water's pushing from behind it, it's still there. If there's a water source, it's still going to exist. You just got to get to it again. The trees, that's the longest-term impact of anything they were told to do. Yeah. So it ends up as a weird, well, not a weird thing, but it's not that unusual. But this, uh, the king of Edom and what he does at the very end of chapter 3. Yeah, he can't, he want or that's moab was it moab the king of moab is trying to break through to the king of edom and he can't get there and his solution then is to sacrifice his own son i mean that's a uh i mm, yeah i don't know that was just like wow you're you're this is um don't know what you're trying to accomplish there but uh buddy i don't think that's going to work for you and it doesn't he doesn't get through he does not get through to the king of edom and why he specifically was trying to get to the king of of um edom i don't know if there's a personal grudge there or what but boy oh boy you're willing to kill your own son just so you can get to this enemy that's a serious that's a serious grudge going on well it just it speaks to what people of the day were doing in their idolatry worship because we hear you're like oh don't don't uh, worship the gods of the nations around you and we're like ah, why is it such a big deal well here's an example of what that worship looks like yeah ugly stuff yeah really ugly stuff and it's it goes back to that me you know every time somebody says well which god should you should you worship a bit well definitely not that one you know yeah and by the way, there's only one. So, right. well, chapter four, we get a story that's a little similar to one that we've actually read before. Uh, before Elijah had been helping out a woman whose flower was about to give out. Well, we get Elisha, who there's a woman who's left a widow and she's got debts, and the creditor is taking to uh, is threatening to take her sons as slaves. 
I'm assuming these are probably young boys, too young to really produce much um, since they aren't able to provide for their mom. And she's got nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Now, somehow Elisha knows this woman, but he tells her to go borrow as many jars as she can. And then just go and start filling the jars from the first one. This is one of those uh, one of those stories you're like, really, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But she does it and it works. She she the, the oil doesn't stop flowing until she runs out of jars. And she gets so much oil that she's able to pay off the debt and still have enough left over to live on. I don't know if that means for the rest of her life or what. But uh, this is one of those cool miracles I'd like to see is like, what does that look like to be able to continually fill, fill, fill jars from uh, one, one jar? You know, there's a magic trick you could see every once in a while where a guy just keeps every once in a while, he'll reach over and grab a, a pitcher and he fills a log, you know, fills a, a glass with water and you think the pitcher's empty until a couple of minutes later, he goes back to that same pitcher and pours more water out of it. I can imagine it looking something like that. But this sounds like that was a lot of oil that she was able to produce by following these instructions. Uh, we get oh, we get another story right behind this one that's similar to, to one we've done before. Elisha develops a friendship with a woman in Shunem. So this is this is where the term Shunemite comes from, uh, from this, this this town or city of Shunem. And he's he regularly stops by her house to have a meal. And she asks her husband to build a room for for him so he has a place to stay anytime he's in the area. So clearly must be pretty friendly with the family to have a whole a whole spare bedroom made basically just for for you. Now, Elisha wants to show some gratitude, but when he learns that she has no son, he tells her that she will have a son the following year. So we've heard stories like this before of uh, of people unable to have children. Um, her 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 husband is old. It's one of those situations where this just seems very unlikely. And her reaction is similar to what our reaction would probably be. Is straight up, she's like, don't lie to me about this. Now, why would she think he would lie, being that he's a prophet? But, but, but that's, her, that's her reaction. Well, I took her reaction to come from her point of view, which was mm-hmm. don't get my hopes up for something mm-hmm. that I know. You know, like even uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Elizabeth in the New Testament, it's like, no, we're, this, this is impossible. How is this? Right. Well, we don't get a lot of details in this, and maybe it's because the Bible writers know that we've already heard stories of of um, this nature. But she does have a son, and as he's growing up, we we it jumps forward to a day where he's visiting his father in the field, and he starts to have a headache, and it sounds like it progresses very quickly, and by noon he's he's dead. Tracy, any ideas on that one? You know, I always think of an aneurysm. Yeah. That was the first word that came to my head, even though I don't totally know what's that what that entails. But um yeah. I was thinking maybe heat stroke or something too. Yeah, maybe. 
I don't know. But at any rate, he dies very quickly. And um, the woman, she she prepares to go see Elisha for help. Her husband's reaction here. He's like, well, why do you want to go today? I mean, it's not a new moon or a Sabbath. It's got me wondering. I mean, is is he a believer? Is he or is he just I don't know. It sounds like a callous a callous reaction like well why 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 do you want to go to him and yeah yeah i don't know how is uh, how is her how is her intentions in traveling to see the prophet even a mystery when the son has had this happen to him yeah yeah so i don't know is he it didn't sound to me like he was not interested in his boy i mean if the boy was going to visit him and this and that uh i don't know that was just a weird weird reaction to me why you want to go it's not a new moon or a sabbath so had me questioning, you know, does he, is he, does he even believe, does, was he just, uh, I don't know, I don't know, it was just odd to me. You know, it's, well, it's too, especially with the relationship that they already had, you know, but then I, too, I have written down that, you know, was it the relationship maybe just through the wife, like, hey, build him an extra room, you know, that kind of thing, where it's not so much him, mm-hmm. where the faith is kind of through his, his spouse, yeah, that's kind of the way I took it. Like maybe he's just he's just uh, trying to keep his, his his wife happy. Well, Elisha sees her approaching, and he sends his servant out. This seems like this becomes kind of his mo, where Elisha doesn't necessarily go out to see people when they're coming to him, and he sends a servant out. And <laughs> when she's asked, she's asked about her husband and her son. And she, her response is, it is well. I'm thinking, your son is dead. How is that good? Um, but maybe this is her having, this is like an expression of her faith. Like, well, everything's going to be okay, I think, because God is going to handle this. It's, she, she just seems to have maybe some confidence and peace in that. But when she gets to Elisha, now she kind of un- unleashes. And she's, she says, uh, did I even ask for a son? Didn't I tell you not to deceive me? So like Karen was saying, why did you get my hopes up with this? Why would you? Why would I have to go through this? I didn't even think I would have a kid to begin with, and now he's been taken away from me. And there's something very interesting. She comes and says this to, to Elisha, and... Um, Gehazi is going to try to push her away, and Elisha says, no, no, no. Uh, This is reading from uh, verse 27. Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and not told me. This is very interesting because Elisha, back to what we've talked about earlier, no two occasions are exactly the same. In this case, he's not shown what's going on. Uh, not in advance, and so he sends Gehazi with the uh, staff and says, basically, don't slow down, don't talk to anybody, no matter how nice they are to you, just go, because you can run faster than I can. And um, he sends Gehazi ahead, and he lays this uh, prophet's staff on the boy. Elisha goes and uh, you know stretches out over the boy and warms him, if I've got the right story here, mm-hmm. and then um, puts himself over the over the boy here, and then it's interesting. 
the details that we get here, he, he sneezes and opens his eyes. Here, this happens after twice, after the, the prophet's done this stuff. And um, the, the boy is raised from the dead, and he's given back to his mother. And it's just like, and that's, it's a miracle that he's performed. And by the way, um, when Elisha asks for double the portion of Elijah, if you count the miracles that are recorded in the Bible of Elijah, and you count the miracles that are recorded um, that happened via Elisha, it's exactly double for Elisha. Except the last one for Elisha, this is that God never does things the same way twice. The last miracle that is done in association with Elisha is after Elisha is dead. He's dead. It is a bizarre but crazy amazing thing. So this raising of the boy is another one of those miracles. And the yeah. next one is just as weird. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I thought it, found it interesting that there were things um, with, how are you saying his name? Gehazi, I kept saying, or Gehazi. I was saying Gehazi. I was saying it, but I don't know how to say it. Yeah, I don't know. But um, the things that Elisha sends him to do, is like, okay, go do this thing. Go lay the staff on the boy and nothing happens. And and then Elisha goes and does the laying down on top of the boy, just like Elijah had done with the other boy. I, I, I was cur- I was just a little curious about why he would have this intuition, okay, go do this thing, and then nothing works. Well, it didn't it didn't it didn't work like it just magically like had him spring to life. Mm-hmm. But if I uh, just just to put myself in that position. If I was a Shunammite and there's this old prophet, you know, kind of shuffling along, I'd be like, oh, come on. Mm. But knowing that he had made like, look, we're going to do this first step as fast as we can. I'd feel like, okay, well, something's happening as fast as it can happen. And the staff, which is kind of like this scene as I mean, through all literature and so on, is has the ability to have this impact right moses's staff is used a number of times that this would give peace to her maybe maybe it had nothing to do with the resurrection of the boy mm-hmm. but it had to do with giving her peace i don't know speculate mm-hmm. no that makes sense that makes sense like just you just want to see something happening and as long as something is happening it gives you a little a little peace that makes sense i was curious also about the sneezing specifically points that out that he sneezes I don't know what the significance is there. I'd be curious to find any insight onto that. I but bet I, you culturally, somehow, that has a that has a meaning. I bet. Yeah, probably, probably. I thought the same thing too. I was curious and was like, I wish I had a way to figure out what that why that was important enough to mention. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so this next story, like Eric said, this is a weird. This one's just strange. There's another famine. In Gilgal, and we're told that the sons of the prophets are with Elisha. And I'm kind of taking this to be like maybe they're his disciples. It sounds like they're just around. Um, in fact, even later on, it sounds like they live with him, possibly. Probably like and a training thing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we have the school of the prophets shows up later. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're so saying, think... oh, it's getting too crowded here. So, right. So I, so I kind of. One of those. Yeah, I think it's probably something along those lines. Well, 
I guess they're hungry. They've been hanging out and they're hungry. And Elisha tells a servant to go make some stew for them. And the servant goes out and just starts gathering random stuff from the land. He grabs some random herbs and some gourds uh, off of a off of a vine he finds just growing wild and serves it to the men and their reaction is there is death in the pot. <laughs> uh, I take he's not a good cook. <laughs> they either <laughs> I could take it two ways. I mean either either it's poison which is probably the case or this is the worst tasting stew they've ever had in their lives because <laughs> i mean you think of a kid who puts something in his mouth that he doesn't want to eat you know they act like they're gonna die um but it's either i i'm guessing maybe they're starting to get sick off of it and um they want none of it so elisha's solution here is let's put a little flour in it and then he serves it again. Are you going to eat something out of the same pot that you just saw somebody just toss a little flour in? I mean, if it's but making that's exactly what I was saying earlier, yeah. like these 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 dis, disassociated little things that God has him do. Like these are acts of faith for Elisha, right? Mm-hmm. They're also acts of faith for the people watching and participating. In this case, how much bravery does it take? How much faith does it take to go, oh, okay, it's fixed now, and dip your spoon back in? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a, it, that is a huge test of faith. And like we said before, there, there, there clearly can't be some, any kind of chemical reaction happening here to, to make this suddenly edible. No, it's just a miracle. It's a miracle. Yeah, it's just a miracle. But yep, so there's, he serves it, and there's nothing wrong, and everybody is happy. Well, the next miracle we're told about is another one involving food. An, a man from Baal Shalisha brings Elisha some uh, bread of his first fruits. He brings 20 loaves of barley bread and some newly ripened grain. And Elisha, it sounds like he doesn't so much accept it as a gift, but he says, well, just go take it to the people, because I'm taking it this is still happening uh, during this famine. So give it to the people. And the guy's like, what am I going to feed a hundred men with this? And basically God comes back and speaks to Elisha and says, yes, they'll, they will eat and they'll have some left over. God likes to work with food. I think. That's important to people. He works with what's important to them. You know, son dies. And we get the idea of the Shunammite woman that her husband was was much older than her. I think it explicitly says that. And so the idea that she's going to end up as a widow with no son and no way to keep her inheritance, that's the biggest danger. And so God deals with what they're dealing with. All right, so we get into chapter 5. And um, I don't know, this is a fairly familiar story. We're we meet a man named Naaman or Naaman. And he is the commander of the Syrian army. And it sounds like he must have been uh, a pretty good warrior because he's been having some victories. And his his master, I don't know if that means the king, really likes the guy. But he happens to be a leper. 
And a captive Israelite girl who has been waiting on Naaman's wife suggests that Elisha could probably heal Naaman. So he goes to him, tells his master this, and his master says, "Okay, go ahead and and go. I'm going to send." He sends him. He sends him to the king. So I'm thinking either the 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 message didn't quite come through, or or there was just an assumption on this master's part. But he sends him to the king with a bunch of gifts, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing, and a letter that basically says, I've sent Naaman to, me, to you so that you may heal him of his leprosy. And when the king gets this letter, he thinks it's a ploy on the part of Syria to, to, to start some trouble. He's like, well, can I, can I uh, uh, cure this man's leprosy? I, I can understand that... Uh, I can understand that that reaction. Well, Elisha learns of Naaman, and he says, well, let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. But this is where he was supposed to go to begin with. So Naaman comes to Elijah's house, Elisha's house. There's three bucks, guys. (laughs) And he's waiting at the door, and Elisha sends out his servant. So, again, Elisha is having, he doesn't even come to the door, but he has his servant tell Naaman to go wash in the Jordan seven times. And this makes Naaman angry because he thought, it's the way it puts it, sounds like he thought Elisha would come out, say some words and wave his hands and do a magic trick, you know. And, and the and the leprosy would just go away. So he just he decides he's just going to leave. He's in a rage. You know, I was reading that too, and and I think it too it had a lot to do with like his his military status, where you know people paid him his due respect, where they came and talked to him, showed him that kind of courtesy, and he didn't get that here. And well, I think that was part of the self thing that you know what. Um, part of the healing part process for that was that he had to be a little bit humbled. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it. I mean, he, to, I mean, I can understand being disappointed. I don't know how far he had to travel, but you get, you get to where you were going and hoping to see the guy you're hoping to see. And he doesn't even bother to come to the door. I mean, do you ever wonder guys Do you ever wonder how much our expectations of what is or is supposed to happen right now get in our way? All the time. Oh, absolutely. think Think about all of the stories that we've read today. Every single one of these things is unexpected, out of left field, not what you would predict. And this is just one little section of five chapters in the Bible. And if you think forward into the new into the New Testament, where Jesus is walking around Earth with his disciples, and he keeps telling them, "I'm gonna die," and then three days later, I'll be raised, and then he dies, and they're devastated. Well, we didn't know he was gonna die. You know how much of our preconceptions just create like this this static wave of noise to where we don't look and actually see, where we're just like proceeding on blind stupidity. But with blinders on, mm-hmm, instead mm-hmm. of proceeding with eyes open in faith, wondering, you know, keeping our keeping our mind open to what God's going to do next. It's like it's this continual effort to shake humanity up from what they think they know. Yeah. 
in mm -hmm. in groups and as individuals is what I am seeing in the stories today. Yeah, yeah, it's it it is a lesson for us to learn that if we want God to work in our lives, we gotta we have to let Him work the way He wants to, and and get away from creating the scenarios in our head of where we think everything is going to work out in a particular fashion because it's so rare that God works in the ways exactly the ways that we think he's going to I can't I can't even describe the number of times that I've probably developed scenarios into my head of how I was going to deal with the situation and then when you actually get into the situation everything goes exactly different than what you thought it was going to and so I can I can understand Naaman's disappointment here. But his servant says, well, if he would have asked you to do something really complicated, you would have done that. So why why don't you just at least try, you know, why not try this? So he so he does. He, he goes and uh, washes in the Jordan River and he's healed. So then he returns to Elisha, grateful, and he wants to give him some gifts, but Elisha refuses the gifts. And Naaman has an interesting request then. He asks for two mule loads of dirt. And the way I take this, he wants to take a little piece of Israel with him, it sounds like, so that when he prays or when he offers sacrifices, he can like do it on this uh, little pile of dirt and feel like he is... Um, doing it in a in a with a piece of Israel, yep. But then he asked for something interesting as well because he's got to go back to his master in Syria, and he says, "I would like to be forgiven because I'm going to have to go back with my master, and he is going to go into the temple of Rimmon, and he's going to bow down in there, and I'm going to have to do that with him, and when that happens." I want God to understand that I am not doing that in worship. I am just trying to, to I'm just there basically to help up, help my master stand up at the end of it. He um, leans on my arm. Yeah. He specifically says that. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, when I do that, it is not worship. I, I am, I am doing it uh, only in support of this, uh, this man. Well, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, Gehazi. Oh, wait, 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 before you go. I miss something. Yeah, before go. you go, we got to finish up and see what, what Elisha says mm. to that request. Because we got some hardcore people who say, you always, always, this is always the answer. Every time, you never. And Elisha says, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very shocking to the fundamentalist, never bend, never change, never make an exception kind of a thing that goes to what Karen's mentioned before, the answer is not always the same. And it's certainly not what we expect. And in this case, God, through Elisha, gives this guy grace to go into the temple of a, of a, of a, you know, of a heathen God and be okay. It's the only time we see that. But for mm -hmm. this guy... In this situation, at this time, it's like, it's all right. We know where your heart's at. Yeah. Sort of the exact opposite of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When exactly. The entire kingdom is bowing down, and they're the, they're the ones standing up saying, we absolutely won't do this. 
So there would have been. Yeah. Yeah. When it would have been the easiest thing for them to just say, all right, I'm just going to go along with the crowd. Um, Yep. I don't really believe this, but I'm doing it. But in this case, in this case, Naaman has said very specifically, I'm doing it for one purpose and one purpose only. And God's okay with it. Yeah. And the, the, the three Hebrews could have said, well, we're going to do it just like Naaman. Because this happened, the Hebrew story in Daniel's happens after Naaman. So they could have said, well, we're going to do it just like Naaman. But I think they felt impressed by the Spirit. No way. We cannot do this at this time. And for them, in that time, at that place, that was definitely wrong. Anyways. Yeah. He's I. Yeah. What yeah. a heck of a story. So he yeah. hears that all this good stuff had been offered to Elisha. He thinks Elisha's crazy for not taking it. He goes out and catches up with Naaman, says, oh, 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 he makes up a story. Yeah, Elisha didn't want it, but some others, we had some unexpected guests show up, and they could use some of these gifts. And Naaman's too happy to be like, oh, sure, cool. Yeah, let me set you up, and thank you again. Uh, Gehazi goes and stashes all this stuff. And then he shows up before Elisha, and Elisha's like, oh, where you been? Nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Elisha says, yeah, my soul went out with you when you asked for all this stuff, and I saw you take it all. Which is so fascinating, because we just read in the story that when the woman of Shunem shows up, Elisha says, yeah, God hid it from me. I don't know what happened. And here... Elisha says, yep, God showed me exactly what you just did. It follows our theme of just don't expect the same thing to happen twice in a row. Expect the unexpected. Yeah, and Elisha really, he points out, this isn't the time for profit. We had somebody come to us who was really in a bad place. And this wasn't the time to to profit off of his misfortune. Yeah. And specifically, because if you remember, you know, he said, we'll do this so that he knows that there that Israel has a prophet. Well, that's the same thing as saying this is, you know, this is somebody who is speaking for God and for this person speaking for God to now uh, seem to be asking for a reward that really goes against what, uh, you know, the whole point of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're given another. Oh, let's not I almost went too far. Ah, yeah. Because Gehazi, Gehazi doesn't get off scot-free here. He he contracts the leprosy that Naaman had. Just not him, though. All his descendants. Okay, it gets worse, I think. Get this. This hadn't really occurred to me until I read it a time or two ago. Is that what role was Elisha to Elijah? He was his, uh, well, I'm going to call him disciple, his... Um, Prophet in training? Yeah. He was a servant. What was Gehazi to Elisha? Servant. Yeah. What I if, thought the same thing, Eric. That jumped out at me also. What if Gehazi could have been the successor to Elisha? Oh, and yeah. And he traded that for two two nice jackets and a piece mm. of gold, silver. What a, what an absolute... Oh, that is the one that just kills me. It's like we could have been reading in Second Kings, you know, 10 of Gehazi the prophet. And I think, oh, man, what did he trade? 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it follows to what we said from a long time ago that we we just don't see the big picture. And sometimes we get trapped in the moment and the accolades right then and we miss miss out on huge blessings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, that's speculation. But when I see that and I see the pattern that's happened here and it, it brings to mind Jesus, you know, it's like, well, what, what does it profit a man? You know, if you gain the whole world, gain all the riches, he's talking specifically of money. If you gain all the money but lose your soul, is that a good deal? Mm-hmm. Answer, no. It's a terrible trade. Yeah. Well, it's a little like Esau giving up his his birthright for dinner. Yeah. You know, for, for basically yeah. nothing. Talking about bigger things like Tracy said here, mm-hmm. spiritual things. Yeah. Well, chapter six, we get another one of these little weird miracles that he had. Uh, his Elisha's home or whatever is too small for all of these disciples of his to live in. And they decide they want to build a new house. And so Elisha goes with them. But as one of the men is cutting down a tree, his axe head falls into the water. If you've ever used one of those older axes, you know that sometimes those axe heads can become loose and you got to really be careful or something like that will happen. They'll just they'll, they'll the, the whole head will fly right off. And he's upset because he borrowed the axe and now he doesn't know what to do. So Elisha comes up with this strange uh, solution again where he tosses a stick into the water where the axe head fell and the axe head floats to the surface. No, no logic in that at all. Just, uh, just a miracle. Yeah, yeah. It's just, and we know the mud, river's muddy because Naaman had already complained about that. Mm. So they couldn't just find it, and iron was probably very expensive. And this, this, um, this guy couldn't pay it back. So to him, it mattered a ton. It's just absolutely. God is dealing with people's issues. You know, it's the equivalent of, I can't find my car keys. Oh, what am I going to do? And in this case, God showed up to just solve this problem. Right. Strange. Yeah. Well, the king of Syria continues to be a thorn for Israel, and he sets up a camp for war with Israel. And... Elisha warns off the king of Israel to stay away from that place. Now, I get the impression that this was supposed to be a secret and that uh, this is a very, it's kind of of a surprise then to the king of Syria that the king of Israel finds out about where his camp was. And he assumes then he has, that he has a mole. And and so he's asking who's, you know, who is the one who is giving this information away? And his men tell him, no, this was Elisha. The way they put it is something along the lines of Elisha tells people the things that you say secretly in your bedroom. And that would be that would be disconcerting to me uh, to know that somebody somebody is able to kind of know my inner. Not the secrets, but um, just and I don't think they're being literal when they say that, but um that no, it's 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 not any of us. None of us have said a word. It's it's this prophet over there, and he knows everything you're doing, and and uh, he's the one who's 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 telling the king uh, what's going on here. 
Well, the king of Syria sends an army to Dothan to capture Elisha. And when the, the army shows up, Elisha's servants gets worried. But Elisha says, don't fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Such and, an awesome quote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he prays for God to open the eyes of the servant so that he can see and all of a sudden, the servant is able to see that the whole mountainside then is full of those chariots of fire like we talked about before. And they're all there to protect them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said that that's an awesome phrase. You know, remembering in these times when we are up against the wall and we have, don't know where else to go, God is on our side. Yes. And we have literal armies there to protect us well they're there and i think that that we just need to remember that they are there and how god chooses to use them i think the three hebrews in daniel are a great example of this is that um god is able but we have to let god do what god's going to do not make god do what we want him to do Well, and it, here's this is interesting to me now, too, because now it would seem that you have an, a whole army, a whole army of, you know, whatever, whatever kind of beings it is that are there to fight for them. But rather than rather than having a giant battle, Elisha just prays for the Syrians to be blinded. And. It happens. They 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 go blind, and so Elisha is able to walk right up to them, and he tells them, "Hey, you guys are in the wrong place. Let me take you to where you need to go." And they follow him. This is I don't know. There, this there'd be just a certain comical element to this in my mind. Absolutely. Of of this whole army following the guy that they were sent to get, not knowing who he is, not knowing where he's taking them. And he leads them right inside Samaria. <laughs> and once he's got him in there, I don't know how many men this is. I have no idea. But, I mean, it, it, they, they were referred to as an army. But he prays for them to see again. And they realize that now they've been taken captive. Oh, uh, what, a, what, a, what a situation to find yourself in, that you've been led right into captivity by the guy that you were sent to to go apprehend just uh just a it's a fight without a fight it's a victory without a fight yes but the king of israel he wants he wants to kill the prisoners but this is where i i think it's even a bigger victory because it it spreads it spreads god mhm because all those all those um army the the whole entire army that's there you know can you imagine just how terrified you would be you're blind you get let in right into your enemy's den right there yeah you're gonna die you probably think that you're going to die and what happens they feed them they give them water and you know what i think that probably reaches to the you know to the ends of the earth them taking that message you know what we were shown mercy and grace yeah, and not just feed them and give them water, but then they let them go. Yeah. Go on home. Just go on home. 
And I it, like how that ends that they just never did it again. Yeah, never came to, it says the Raiders, at least mine says Syrian Raiders never came to Israel again, or at least they right. just stopped coming, you know. Well, the chapter ends with a bit of a cliffhanger now. There's there's famine again, or still, or whatever, because Syria uh, is sieging uh, Samaria. They've besieged Samaria, and there's a famine. And it's so bad that, what, what did it say, a donkey's head and even bird droppings have monetary value, and it sounds like for, for food, I don't. Can you eat bird droppings? Am I am I was I reading that wrong? Well, you're not reading it wrong, and whether you can eat it or not, I have no idea. But people were paying for it. Yeah, yeah. And so it's so bad that people are 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 buying it. And it, I mean, this is in context of famine. So I was like, oh, I don't know what you're doing with that, but um, but wow. Well, they turned to cannibalism too. Yeah. Yep. So that's how this story kind of uh, moves on. A woman stops the king. With a grievance, her neighbor is refusing to share her son to eat after they had already eaten the first woman's son. They had agreed, today we'll eat my son, tomorrow we'll eat yours. Um, oh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine getting to the point where you would eat your own child. Um, this is this is the uh, basically the apostate. Israel, they're not doing the right thing. No. And Elisha is is at home, and um, there's people with him, and the king is basically saying, I'm going to kill the prophet. And this is, people, we can look at this and we can say, oh my goodness, why can't the king understand? It's his own behavior and idolatry that has got Samaria into this trouble. But we don't do that. We, we hear a forecast of, oh, there's a huge storm coming. And we're like, I know, let's kill the weatherman. And, and we haven't changed that much from them. That was their idea. That was the king's idea. He's like, well, we'll kill the messenger. And then yeah. that'll, that'll make it better. And it yeah. does. Right. Yeah. Spoiler alert for next week, because that's where the chapter ends. It's one of those breaks in the chapter where you're like, well, you guys could have gone just a little further, but a little bit well, of a cliffhanger. Yeah, a little bit of a cliffhanger, and I'll you know I'll give you I'll give you the uh, I'll give you the trailer or the 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 the, uh, the teaser because God says tomorrow about this time, flour is going to be sold for next to nothing. So things are coming up. Things are things are looking up. Things are coming ahead. Um, but uh, for the time being, we're left with a bit of a cliffhanger here and, and have to find out what happens next week. So you can you can wait to hear what we tell you. I would recommend reading ahead and finding out how the story how the story goes. Uh, any final thoughts today? No, read it. And I think that the same God who was working with the continually apostate Israel and foreigners is interested in us in our lives too. He is. And I think things will, things that we're not promised that everything will go great for us, but things go better if we align ourselves with God and we say, God, what do you want for me? And then we wait for God because he does the most unexpected things. 
All right. Well, next week we will read more about that story while you're waiting for that. Uh, let's see. We're going to read next week for next week. We're going to do Second Kings chapters 7 through 11. And then we'll get more stories of kings and a little bit more about Elisha in there, if I'm not mistaken. So Second Kings chapter 7 through 11. While you're waiting for that, remember that you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Send us an email and let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you have any questions. Look for us on Facebook. Make sure you share the podcast so that we reach your friends and family and neighbors. And make sure you subscribe so that we reach you in your feet each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.